0: Let's get into the weeds. I'm your host, Brian Brown, Integrated Weed Management Specialist with the New York State IPM program. I'm talking today with Sarudi Hooks, who is an Associate Professor and Extension Specialist at the University of Maryland. His research program is multidisciplinary and involves the use of conservation tillage and habitat diversification. To influence arthropods, weeds, soil mites, and nematodes. So, welcome, Sarudi.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: So, uh, what have you been working on lately? Uh, what are What are some of your current projects?
1: Well, I, I would say maybe the three biggest projects, um, and the graduate students could probably explain these better than me, but I'll, I'll do my best. So, one of the projects we have is working with cantaloupe, and we're trying to work with some perennial. Um, live in mulches, uh, one being outside clover and the other being um, Virginia ryegrass. And the idea is here is that uh, we plant these um, in the fall um, prior to the growing season. And of course, they grow all during the winter, though they don't put on much biomass. And then in the spring, we go in and we strip till them and uh, we plant cantaloupe. And one of the reasons why we're doing this is that we have found that intercropping cucurbits with cover crops, we seem to get a reduction in some of the pests, um, more specifically the striped cucumber beetle, um, spotted cucumber beetle, not as much, not as often. And we tend to, once after that season is old, we destroy the cover crop, of course. So one of the reasons why we're starting to work with perennial cover crops is we're not only interested in how, what sort of impact it has on passed during a particular season, but we're interested in if these cover crops can serve as refuge for these beneficial insects in which they can overwinter in. And in the following season, if they overwinter there, we plant our crop, then we already have a head start because they're already in the field. And one of the reasons we never worked with for grass before, because we consider them to be quite competitive, but we know a lot of literature shows that some of our um, most beneficial ground predators, some of the crabbits, um, they like to overwinter in in these sort of grass-type habitats. So we decided to look at grass for that reason. It gives us an opportunity to compare a grass environment uh, with something like clover, outside clover, which clovers we have worked with a lot although we mainly work with red clover, and we decided to work with outside clover, we want to look at a different clover, and we're also interested in looking at one that may not be as competitive as red clover. Okay. In another project I have, um, and this is more of a weed project, um, and this is working for a graduate um, PhD student, um, Veronica Yurchak, and in this particular study, we're doing a mixture of, of different cover crops. Um, we're looking at no till, and then we're looking at conventional till. And then we have another two other treatments where we're working with red clover interplanted with rye and red clover interplanted with forest radish. And we did this system a little bit different. Um, normally, when we do these cover crop mixture, we just sort of mix the seeds all together and they're all planted within the field in that particular manner. But in this instant, we sort of used the, these different cover crops as an interplanting system. So basically what we have, the cover crops are planted at six inch row spacing. So we have two rows of red clover, and then we have three rows of forest radish, two rows of red clover, three rows of forest radish, and so on. And we did a similar treatment with rye, where we have two rows of red clover, three rows of rye, two rows of red clover, three mm. rows of rye. Okay. And then what happens is the forest radish, of course, in the winter, it dies. So in the spring, where the forest radish is, we have a bare ground space. And that's oh. where we plant our crop.
0: Oh, I like that. <laughs> now,
1: and, and one of the reasons why we did this is that we used to make these bare ground space using a strip tiller. Um, one of the, the downsides of using the strip tiller is is that when you till that soil in the spring, you disturb it. And when you disturb it, you're going to get a weed flush. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to determine a method where we can make, have this bare ground space without disturbing the soil. So that's why we sided with forest radish because it, again, it dies in the winter. You don't have to disturb the soil. You got that bare ground space and then you can plant your crop in between that. Um, another reason is the one reason, one of the reasons why we do two rows of red clovers and three rows of forest radish or rye as, instead of doing this equal number is that If we use three rows of forest radish or rye, that gives us an 18 inch bare ground spacing. So one of the other difficulties you have with working with living mulch is they're they're alive, so they can compete. They can be just like weeds. But what we have determined is that when we have at least an 18 inch row spacing, um, I should say 18 inch bare ground space between the crop rows, we're less likely to get that competition from the living mulch. Okay. Now going back to this, in the case of rye, of course, rye does not d- die naturally. So what what happens is, in the spring, we basically roller crimp the rye, and then that basically lays down the rye, and then we plant the crop. Um, in this case, she's looking at sweet corn, and we plant the sweet corn directly in the middle of that um, that rye that laid down rye. The other good benefit of the of the rolling is, of course, the roller is not going to kill the um, the red clover, um, but it sets it back just a little bit. It sort of slows it down at at the beginning of the season, and we like that because that's another way that we can reduce early season competition with our test crop that we grow.
0: Yeah. All right. So, and then as your sweet corn or your squash gets established, um, does it grow above or outcompete the perennial? cover crop or the cover crops between the rows?
1: Yes, in the case of sweet corn, um, we found that it does quite well. Of course, sweet corn is a tall, upright crop, so we expected it to do well. In the case of um, our cantaloupe, which is one that grows more on the ground and the crawling type, we thought we may have some problems with that. And what what we found is the grass tend to be more competitive with it than the outside clover. So one of the things we may do is widen the space. In other words, that bare ground space that we have where we plant our squash, we may want to widen that. We're going to widen that a little bit this year. We, and hopefully we won't get any um, of that competition um, that we had in the previous field season.
0: Mm, okay. Can you talk a little bit about the, the uh, insect pests that you're hoping the, the natural enemies uh, will, will um, control?
1: With respect to cantaloupe, I would say the the one that we're most interested in is the striped cucumber beetle. Mm -hmm. And what we have determined is from past research that, believe it or not, one of the best predators of the striped cucumber beetle is wolf spiders. Mm. And I should say that's one of the reasons why it's sort of drawn us to sort of look at this grass cover crop, although we don't. We think it could be quite competitive that we know spiders will also over winter in these sort of grass type environments. So I would say that's what we mainly looking for. We are mainly looking for wolf spiders to see if we have higher number of wolf spiders. And one of the way we monitor that is um, cause they can be very active at night or active when we're not out in the field. So we use these pitfall traps. So that's, that's the main, one of the main thing we're interested in is um, wolf spiders, larger wolf spiders. And we also, of course, we look at um, carabids.
0: Okay. Now, carabid uh, beetles, and I, I'm familiar with them from a, you know, the weed side of things that they can eat weed seeds sitting on the soil surface. Are there any, are there any other um, services they provide?
1: Well, they will also, um, some of them will also climb on the plants and search for prey. And in the case of cantaloupe, since cantaloupe is not a tall, upright plant where basically the, the, um, the vegetation is on the ground, basically it puts them in a direct area of these carabids. So we felt that with respect to uh, cantaloupe, uh, they will probably be more beneficial when you, when you compare it to, say, something like eggplant, which grows more upright. And you have some of those ground predators that tend to will not climb plants But in this instance, because the cantaloupe is viney um, and grows on the ground, we we suspect that they can also be of importance in controlling some of the uh, herbivores or insect pests that we find in cantaloupe. Okay. And with respect to sweet corn, we think they could mainly be of benefit, say, if you have some of these caterpillars, like the corn earworm, when they drop down, if they're feeding in the ears or something, they drop down to pupate. Uh, while they're roaming around the ground, trying to find an area to dig under and, and pupate. If we have a higher number of these ground beetles at that particular stage, then, the, then there's a greater opportunity that these caterpillars can be eaten before they um, dig underneath the ground and pupate.
0: Okay, yeah, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> and and how about for the clover you mentioned? All site clover is that for uh, for ground beetles like the carabids as well, or is that for to try to promote another natural enemy?
1: Well, one of the things we've seen with red clover is that we find we tend to find some of the a higher number of these generalist predators, and we talk about things like geochorus, which is the big eye bug. And we also find higher number of minute pirate bug, um, aureus species. And these are generalist predators that would feed on soft body insects. Um, in the case of the minute pirate bug, it's quite small, but it will feed on things like aphids, thrips. It'll probably feed on, it'll feed on lep eggs and things. And then of course you have uh, the big eye bug, which is slightly larger, tend to feed on the same things, soft body insects such as thrip, white flies, mites, um, small caterpillars, and it is a larger insect and we have seen it feed on things such as first and second instar um, stink bug. Hmm. So we have seen in red clover that we tend to have a higher number of these. So because outside Clovis is a similar stature as red clover, uh, we're hoping that we can also see higher numbers of these these generalist predators in, in in those type of communities with the outside clover also.
0: Okay, great. So, do you think do you think that the species is more important, or uh, you know, in harboring the natural enemies these 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 predators, or the um, reduction of tillage? or
1: both. <laughs> I, th- I think it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Of course, when we talk about reduction in tillage, we know one of the things that is, that is quite disruptive to things such as spiders and carabids is tillage. They tend to don't, they don't like having their soil the soil disturbed. So in that case, I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, answering the question be- with respect to whether it is, is um, having certain predators is associated with the species and I'll say yes to that also um, to some res- to some regards and in in some regards I would say that because there are some of these plants that we use for cover crops are enhancing diversification of a cropping system and they will also attract their herbivores and then of course these herbivores attract natural enemies and if they, attract similar natural enemies that are going to be controlling pests that are on the crop, then we can say, yes, um, that, is, that could be of, of great importance based on the, um, the cover crop species that, that you choose. Now, in some instances, it may be not necessarily the species are attracting a greater number of natural enemies, but its diversification of the system per se re- reduces the colonization of the herbivore. And then what we have found in some instances is that we can look at plants that are totally different, but they seem to have the same impact on these herbivores or insect pests simply because they reduce their colonization or even they may reduce their tenure time. In other words, during a certain part of the season, we may see um, there's a similar number of these herbivores or insect pests in the bare ground system versus diversification versus diversified system, diversified plant system but then all of a sudden we see the, the number starts to drop. And these numbers does not seem to be related to the natural enemy population, which may say they, and, and we know that with some herbivores, they will spend less time when their host plant is surrounded by non-host plants. They're less likely to spend time in that system for some reason.
0: Interesting. So it's kind of kind of a repellent to have different plants in
1: the mix? Yeah, I guess you could call it that. It's, some, mm. it's somewhat of a, a repellent. But it may not necessarily mean that the plant is producing any odor that is, re, mm. is repelling the insect away. Not such a, not when we talk about something like a push-pull. In a push-pull, you do have the plant is producing something that's sort of repelling the herbivore um, away.
0: Yeah, let's so talk about push-pull talk- for a little bit. It, 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 do you, have you uh, worked with those type systems? What would you suggest for, uh, you know, vegetable growers and field crop growers? Are there, are there different tried and true push-pulls?
1: We've only done one study where we tried to evaluate push-pull. And this was a system of, let me think, lima beans. And what we were trying to control was the Mexican bean beetle. And I had came across some old literature where it was suggested that the Mexican bean beetle is repelled from odor coming from um, marigold. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we set up a study where we interplanted lima beans with marigold. And what we did was on the outside of that, we planted snap beans. Because when I started looking in literature, the literature also sort of showed that the Mexican bean beetle prefer snap beans over lima beans. And specifically, it seemed like they have a real liking for wax snap beans. So what we did was we planted these lima beans. And on the outside of the lima beans, we had these wax beans. And in the inside, interplanted within the lima beans, we had this French marigold. And the idea was, hopefully, the French marigold would repel them out of the lima bean or push. And then at the same time, this wax snap beans is serving as a trap crop or pull, which is pulling them in. And what is interesting, what we found is that during this particular study, we didn't have a high population of Mexican bean beetle. So we found on a low population of Mexican bean beetle, it didn't seem to have an effect. But what we noticed was that we had a greater number of these natural enemies and specifically parasitoids it's a parasitoid that is known to attack the immature stages of the Mexican bean beetle.
0: Uh huh.
1: So what we thought may have been happening was that this marigold, of course, produces a lot of flower. And we thought that it's possible that these parasitoids were attracted to the flower because it was getting nectar from the flower. And that's why we had a higher population of these particular parasitoids in the uh, push-pull system versus the system that consists of just a monoculture lima bean planting.
0: Okay, wow.
1: (laughs) So it was sort of a unique finding that we said, well, the push-pull system didn't, we don't think it worked, um, at at least not at low population levels. But Mm. what we were able to discover was that um, marigold could potentially be used as an insectary plant. And that was a good thing to know because Marigold claim to fame especially French marigold is that um, it releases allelopathic properties that are toxic to to several species of plant parasitic nematodes. Hmm. So it would good to, to notice that there may be in addition to having to suppress below ground plant pests such as plant parasitic nematodes we could potentially use as an insectary plant to attract natural enemies, and these natural enemies and specific parasitoids would also help control um, insect pests that are, are above the ground that could be in the foliage of the crop.
0: Okay, huh. and with that with that pull part of it, with the, um, the wax beans, you know, once they, they had attracted a lot of the pests, would you go through and, and spray or flame or try to Kill those pests, or or what's the best practice there?
1: Well, we didn't have to because the population um, mm-hmm. the population was so low that it didn't um, it didn't destroy the trap crop. Mm-hmm. But you do raise a, a very good point, and that's very um, very important to point out is that if you're working with a trap crop, and you have to monitor that trap crop because sometimes we use the term that a trap crop works too well. And what we mean by it works too well is that it does a lot in that it attracts all the pests away, but it attracts a number of pests, and they build up high populations, and they devour the trap crop. And once they devour the trap crop, then they move into your mm-hmm. crop that you're trying to protect, and it could be more damaging because of the high population. So in in our instance, we didn't have to worry about that, but certainly if you you if you use a trap crop type of um, strategy. It's very important to monitor that trap crop. Um, and even in some instances, um, if you're a conventional grower, you may have to spray the trap crop. But the idea behind that is the trap crop typically only takes up a very small portion of the entire um, field. And if you have to spray it, you're spraying a much smaller amount of spray. And also you're not di- directly spraying the markable crop, which is gonna be in the interior of the field. Mm-hmm.
0: Gotcha. So on a similar note, let's talk for a minute about habitat buffers, you know, plantings on the edges of your crop that can serve as, um, you know, a diverse habitat for some of our natural enemies. And I I know you've done quite a bit of work in this area. Um, Are there any, um, you know, key findings you can share with farmers? I saw one study you did with partridge pea. Is that
1: Yes, partridge pea. So yes, so partridge pea is one that is very interesting, and that partridge pea does everything that an insectary plant should do. I mean, it attracts a diversity of different parasitic insect, beneficial insect that um, lay their eggs inside of either the egg of a pest that you don't like, or maybe on the, the immature stage, or even on the adult stage. But it can act as a a sink for natural enemies. In other words, it also attracts various herbivores. So sometimes everything that parasitoid wants in this lifespan is right there in that pasture's pea. So it doesn't move into the neighboring crop. Mm. And and we have seen this, and I think we've all, we've seen this, of course, in corn, and we've seen a similar thing in in soybeans when we've looked at pasture's pea. Is that we say it's it acts as a sink. Um, so one of the things we're, we're thinking with Parshish Pea is that perhaps a, maybe a better strategy with Parshish Pea as opposed to putting on the border of the crop where it, it brings those natural enemies away from the crop is that you may want to look at using as strips within the crop itself. And that way those natural enemies will also have to mingle around within the crop and we may get better results.
0: Okay. so. Do you have any advice for growers then as far as how to manage those uh, buffer zones or headlands between crop? Are are Um, there any generalities that can be made or is it kind of depend on the situation?
1: Yeah, it's it's really going to be dependent on the situation and it's going to depend a lot what's on the outside of the cropping system. But I think one of the general, I guess, Probably be the general rule of thumb is that the the greater the diversity, the structural diversity, the better, mm-hmm. and also um, not disturbing it too much. If you disturb it, in some instances, um, it could be dis- disrupted through those natural enemies. And when I say disturb it, mean if you're having to mow it and things of that nature, that could cause a disturbance because then things will may move out, and then they have to come back and recolonize. Mm-hmm.
0: So I I know uh you know some growers will mow or even spray herbicides on the the buffer zones around their fields um you know particularly if if there if there are uh nasty weeds in those areas like uh, any of the the amaranth species uh, but but oh, I guess I, I guess that those weeds that I'm thinking of are mostly annuals And if it's not a regularly tilled area, then the annuals are going to be outcompeted by perennials over time. And it sounds like the perennials may be better habitat anyways. Is that right?
1: If it's a perennial, that's not going to be a particular problem in that particular cropping system. So I would say in that instance is that you certainly don't want the outside of the border area of your field serving as a nursery for weed proliferation, especially mm. those weeds that can be problematic into your crop field. So it's, it's kind of reaching a balance. It's kind of reaching a balance between the, the two. All right. So
0: I know that um, you know, certain weeds can pl- uh, serve as a host for various crop diseases. Is that also true for uh, insect pests? Can can weeds serve as hosts, and, and are there certain examples of that that you can share?
1: Yes, and I would say that probably the best way um, to think of that is if it's weed is a similar family as the crop that you are growing. For instance, if you have a solanaceous weed, then there's a good chance that, that solanaceous weeds may host the same pest that that particular crop is gonna host. And then you have some pests that are are just prolific and that they can, there's a lot of different weeds that they can uh, be a host of. And that, that makes it very difficult for a farmer. You, we, when we think about some of the thrips, uh, various thrips that may be a pest of tomato there are so many different weeds and so many different families of weeds that these thrips can probably survive on. And some of these, these um, weeds may host various diseases that these thrips can pick up and then transmit it to the crop. So in some instances, for some pests, it's a little bit difficult to nail down which weed species are going to be problematic. And for others, you can, again, if it's within the same family of that crop, I think it's okay to assume that that particular plant um, could serve as a host for pests that would be problematic in the crop itself.
0: Mm. But also potentially a host for the natural enemies. Is that right? It, so <laughs> It could.
1: It could. And, mm. and it could work out better. But mm. of course, mm. a lot of times farmers don't have time to I mean, they they can scout their crop, but a lot of times they may not have time to go and scout their um, um, the weeds outside of that field, to determine if they're serving as a, a negative aspect and serving just as a host of plants. Or as you as you mentioned, um, I go back to that thrip example. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be fine if these if these hosts of these alternative weeds that are surrounding the field are hosting thrips, but these thrips are not transmitting diseases to the um, the crop in the field, but these strips are attracted a number of natural enemies, such as the minute pirate bug and geocrys, and these geocrys are building up in high numbers and they're moving into the crop field, it could be a a significant benefit. Mm. Um, So if farmers would have time to to sort of scout those areas, if they did have the time, then they could determine, I mean, for instance, that they went to a, a weed and they Pucked off, and they shook the um, plant, and they determined. Well, there's a lot of thrips here, or there's a lot of aphids here, but I don't see any ladybugs, and I don't see some of the other generalist um, predators. Then they can may determine that it's, it's not of, it may not be of any benefit to them. Mm,
0: I see. Okay. All right. Um, so I I want to uh, spend a minute on um, residue and the effects of residue. I I know you've done some work with. Um, rolling down rye and planting into um, a rye, a dead rye cover crop. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so we've we've done a lot with no-till and this mainly, a lot of this has been for the organic producers. Um, One of the negative aspects of no-till um, I, I should say, in trying to manage weeds for organic farmers, they rely heavily on tillage. And a lot of times they don't like this it's, it's because they have this battle with saying, well, we can't control weeds because we don't have any um, herbicides or that are that work well. Or if they do, they're just it's just economically unfeasible to use these high-priced organic herbicides on the entire field. We, we can't make a profit. So what we've been doing is trying to look at um, no-till as a potential um, alternative to um, using the residue to help manage weeds. Although we also do it, this sort of work in conventional studies and conventional fields. And we've determined that we, when we compare with um, no-till, with regular conventional till, um, there is less weed and there, we tend to spend less time weeding in no-till situations. Um, some of the negative aspect of, of no-till though is that if they tend to rely on this over too many field seasons, they could end up with perennial weed problems. So that's the downsides of work with no-till. Um uh, no-till doesn't work well for weeds such as um the yellow nut sesh, the purple nut sesh, but you may be maybe get easily get two, maybe even three field seasons with no-till, allowing that residue to build up and you can get um, good weed control, and then once uh, organic farmers, they if they see there's a possibility of perennial weeds moving into the field, then they may want to go back to, to tillage. And and I guess one of the reason, but the downsides what we have found with um with working with cover crop residue is is a lot of it has to do with the biomass. If for some reason we don't get a lot of biomass, then we're not going to get that good weed suppression for whatever reason. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a lot on biomass, and then also even the weather conditions. What we've noticed if that if there's a lot of rain, that residue tends to break down a little bit faster, and and that was one of the reasons why we sort of started moving and looking at the living mulch, um, because with the living mulch system, you have a cover crop that is living the entire life cycle of that crop, so it should compete with weeds the entire season, the entire crop in season. And of course, one of the negative aspects of that, and we're talking about using, and with the living mulch, we use strip tilling, and script tilling, um, which, I, which I sort of describe as a hybrid between conventional till and no till, and that we, we only till small strips where we're going to plant the crop row, and the remainder of the field remains in no till, or basically we're growing this living cover crop. So, and of course, I mentioned earlier, one of the downsides of that is that when you have to do that till, you do get a flush of weeds because you're disturbing that soil. So that's why we started looking at mixing the two, mixing the living mulch with the um, um, with the no-till type of situation. And, and it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Is This is one of the reasons why we started mixing the, the living mulch or the red clover with rye, because we can have the rye in the center of the row. And the idea is that that rye doesn't have to suppress the weeds the entire season because within the crop row itself is your crop. So you just need that rye to suppress those weeds long enough for that crop to grow and that canopy to close. Mm -hmm. And then once that canopy close, it's basically going to outcompete those weeds and shade them out. Mm So that's one of the negative aspects of the no-till is it's not going to last the entire season. It may do it may do well enough for the crop in that within row area to keep those weeds suppressed long enough for that crop canopy to close. But then it's the between row areas that you may have weeds to start popping up, and that could be problematic. Mm.
0: And where that rye residue is, the the dead rye leaves, is that Present any problems or opportunities for insect pests? Are there? Does that make a habitat that they like or dislike?
1: It could for some pests. Certain pests that may also um, may also take refuge under that residue. So in some instances, it could for those situations where the herbivore wants to take refuge, it could sort of um, it could make the habitat more hospitable for those herbivores. Um, some that um, are in concurbate feels that that could be problematic. On the other side of that is that also you have things like, I can go back to the carabids that they like to hang out on these areas. So it could also make them more vulnerable to these predators. Mm-hmm. The problem would be is that in many instances, you're going to have far more herbivores than you will have predators. So it doesn't balance out as well. So you may still have Although uh, they're putting themselves in the vicinity of where they can be eaten by predators, there may be just so many of them that the predators simply can't keep up with them anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. To sum things up for, for the growers here, Sir Rudy, can we get one last uh, final tip for as far as um, for, you know for growers that are trying to promote natural
1: enemies? I would say diversity. And when I was talking about diversity, I'm talking about diversity in in the structure of the plants that you're using, if you're using insectary plants, and diversity in their flowering period. So an ideal situation, if you're going to, especially if you're trying to attract parasitoids, you want to have plants that are flowering the entire season long. So you're going to want some plants that are flowering during the early part of spring, as early as possible. You want some that are flowering late summer, even early fall, if you have these long-season crops that, you're, that are going to stay out to the field until frost kills them, and you want to make sure that you're having some that are flowering during that between period. So I say the diversity in the flowering period and, and diversity in structure are two things important to consider if you're going to be using flowering plants for attracting um, uh, for natural enemies okay. or non-flowering plants. Mm-hmm. Structural diversity can also be an, an, an important uh, mm-hmm. piece of the pie.
0: Okay. All right. Cerruti Hooks, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: (laughs) All right. That's all for today. Thanks to the New York Farm Viability Institute for funding this project. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Into the Weeds.